Welcome back to season four of the Midwifery Wisdom Podcast. We are so excited to have you all back for this new season. We have so many new and exciting things to bring to you. A new co-host, some new topics, and of course, all of the incredible stories and wisdom that we have each season. One of the most exciting changes we have this season is that we are now produced by the Midwifery Wisdom Foundation. The foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in Texas that aims at supporting midwives. We will have a lot more information about this to come, but just know that it is something truly remarkable. If you love what you've been hearing, take a second to drop a review in whatever podcast platform you're listening on. It really makes a difference for our show. It helps us to know both what you're loving and what you would like to hear in the future. In this episode, we get to hear from our wonderful Augustine. Side note, I was just talking with her tonight, it's Halloween. She got to spend the whole evening holding a brand new snuggly baby and passing out candy. Doesn't that just sound like the perfect way to spend your night? This week, she's talking with Rebecca Cohen, a holistic women's healthcare physician who has spent the last 30 years dedicated to working with women. Rebecca has extensive training in midwifery, family medicine, obstetrics, herbal medicine, and traditional healing practices from around the world. She's a mother of nine children and is devoted to orienting women to their own inner knowing as they thrive in sovereignty, fully realizing their vibrant health and creative potential. Her practice, Full Circle Holistic, seeks to guide women to reclaim their womb wisdom and honor the sacredness of their bodies. I was trained as a midwife before medical school, and then I was a physician, and I did, well, first I was at like Casa de Nascimento in El Paso, and then um, did medical school, chose to do family medicine residency, um, rather, even though I knew I wanted to do OB, and then like a obstetrics fellowship, so I was like a surgical OB mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. OB. And then I had five kids in eight years and then I adopted four more and then I stepped away from birth work. Um, And then now my kids are finally old enough where I was returning. So I started like taking Rochelle Garcia's course, her nine month innate postpartum course. And it was like four to six hour, I mean, four to 6 PM on Wednesdays, which is like when my kids have all, I'm like, if my family can't do that, then I'm gone for two hours when they know what it is each week, I'm not going to be out. So that was like my start. And then I did radical birth keeping school with free birth society. And then I did Wapios, Matrona, and then now I'm doing home births again. And yeah. Amazing. Well, I saw your website and um, it just like stopped me in my tracks, which is what you probably hear this feedback a lot. Um, so your website says in service of women's health and sovereignty, you are not broken. You are whole, sacred and powerful. And then there's this doctor with MD afterwards. And I was like, who is this person? I have to know more. Um, you're probably aware how radically different your perspective, your take on women's healthcare is compared to your colleagues. And um, I wonder, like, I have a lot of questions for you today, but one of my main questions is like, how do you navigate that diametric opposites? Like, how do you walk in these two spaces? Like, is it really difficult for you? What kind of feedback do you get from your colleagues? Like, how do you exist in both spaces? Yeah. So one thing that I really needed to do was release myself from the concept that of the feedback of my colleagues. And um, because I took the break, so, you know, I had um, five kids in eight years. I was actually still like at the hospital. Um, I was kind of known as like the natural birth doctor in the hospital. I worked with a nurse midwife and was rolling it a lot, um, working maybe less than my full OB colleagues, but still a ton for a mom with five young kids. And then I stepped back. And when I stepped back, I had this feeling like if I would have thought I was leaving birth forever, I wouldn't have been able to step back. I just wouldn't have, but I kind of joked about it. And I was like, well, when I come back, I'm going to be the granny midwife. And whereas before I was, um, 
sort of, you know, having babies myself and um, having my friends' babies. And I did, I did a few home births on the side. I was really on the down low about myself, my own home births. My husband's a neonatologist. It's not like we hit it, but we didn't necessarily talk about it. Um, uh, the home births of the friends that I had, and I had a, you know, friends that were, um, that direct entry midwives is what we called them at the time. And I might attend their home births, didn't really let the hospital know at all. And so at that point in time, it was more hidden, but then as I stepped away, um, and then went to come back, I initially was worried about those things, but I'm not, I'm just not anymore. And I've just separated myself out so much. And I really realized like, and it's been a lot of self-work, honestly, like I have a concept of what they think, but not really clear who the they is. And sort of like, there's these nebulous background, like they who are judging me because I'm doing this or not doing that. And um, at some point in time, honestly, a lot of it, that my um, radical birthkeeping school at the Free Birth Society really helped me with that. Um, okay. Emily and Yolanda are, are really strong women who are out doing um, yeah. sort of outside the... <laughs> yeah, very outside. The yes. work and the... Yeah. Um, people have a lot of ideas about what that school is and what it does. And most of the time when I see stuff that other people have written about it, they have no idea because they haven't taken it. And I'm, it's, um, but a full third of our course was self-mastery, it was called. And so we did a lot of drama triangle work. We did a lot of um, Byron Katie's, like the work mm -hmm. about where are you, where do you stand? And that's where, um, that really helped me doing that with my teachers in that school and doing that with my classmates in that school sort of helped me begin to see like, oh, that they that's been um, that I think is out there, like they already think I'm crazy for attending women at home. Right. So for then me to attend women at home and let women make the decisions about whether or not they choose to do the glucose test or whether or not they choose to do the GBS test or whether or not they want their blood pressure taken while they're in labor, whatever it might be. Um, it's already crazy to, to the nebulous they. And so I just realized that my relationship is with the woman and the women that I serve. And so that has sort of opened me up to a whole um, different clientele that really stretch me. It stretches me as a physician. Sometimes my physician mind in the back, when I hear um, women coming to me that are making the choices that they're making is like trying to get my attention, but um, yeah. they're smart women who come and see me. They're smart women who are invested in their care and are educated and um, come to me as a resource, not for me to tell them what to do. And so that's who I serve. So I don't serve that nebulous they about what my colleagues think. Um, I just don't care much anymore. <laughs> but I'm saying that now, but it took me kind of years to go through yeah. that, you know, process. And I still, oh, oh, I still get back up in it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the, they, um, yeah. we'll just call the medical industrial complex. Right. Living folks. Um, they have a lot to say. And, um, I think what's really striking when you sit in circles of folks who are super indoctrinated into that thought process there's a real um, entitlement. There's this real belief that I know better. It's this paternalistic kind of holdover from ancient, um, well, I mean, not so ancient, but from, from the medical industrial complexes takeover of traditionally women's spaces. We've had this paternalistic, patriarchal, misogynistic, oftentimes control of or belief of superiority um and it's really threatening to those folks 
to um, sit in this humility, like where you've gotten to, where it's like, I'm not in charge, right? Yeah, yeah. it's very, it's very threatening and it's very interesting. Like so often when people hear the term like patriarchal, they think it has to be a man doing it or misogynistic. Right. Yeah. It has to be no, a man. No, no, um, <laughs> it's oftentimes and, women. Well, I mean, and yeah. it's the same way with like, like, um, uh, female genital, um, uh, mutilation or, or female circumcision, right. It's oftentimes perpetrated by women, even though it exists within the patriarchy. Um, and so, yeah, that's a really important distinction that sometimes women are the worst perpetrators of the misogyny and the patriarchy and the paternalism. Yeah, I think that, you know, even phrases like shared decision making, I thought, you know, I got problematic shared decision making and um, it's not shared decision making. It's really the woman's decision. And um, it is radical and, and, you know, radical being back to the roots. If you look at the root Latin of the word radical back to the roots, like coming back to our roots what's really happening in this dynamic? It's myself and this woman, and I am here and really in service to her. And she is sovereign. She is the queen. Um, you know, there's practical way and it's, it's this deep, um, deep relationship. Like I go slow. I don't take a ton of people. Um, and I go deep. And that's really, it, it's whether you're coming to see me in my office for like a more like, um, whether it's a gynecological type issue or, um, you know, we have two hour intakes and one hour follow-up. And I couldn't do that before with what, where I was, I couldn't do that with billing right. insurance. It's unfortunate. You know, I couldn't do that with billing insurance. I couldn't do that. Um, when I sat in a hospital system or, um, when, yeah. And so I, but that sort of radicalness of coming back to the roots of what does it mean to sit with women and serve women? Um, and it's a, it's a process, it's an undoing and it's a re, um, reframing every single time. And Honestly, a lot of the women who come and see me initially for their births, that's new to them too. Like it requires a lot of work on their part. And some of them are down, but they don't quite know what that, what that means. And so to have the mirror and reflect back and say, well, here's this information about it. Here's that information about it. And um, well, what do you think bad? I don't answer. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I never do either. <laughs> Yeah, that's dangerous, right? Because the way that our patriarchal society has set up experts as like people who sit above, right? They've pedestalized most experts. So even if they're actively trying to decolonize or depatriarchal their brain, they still will have these inborn perceptions of who you are as an expert and sort of raise you up. And so if you share something off comment, like, oh yeah, I never did that. They'll be like, that's the right way. Got it. Now I, you know, it's, it's, right. Right. And, and it's, um, and it's being, it's spending enough time and being like my prenatals are an hour and a half long each time. So that if, for example, we're talking about some testing that they're going to do or not do, um, sometimes, for example, if I was going to choose like the gestational, um, you know, the glucose tolerance test, there might be this information about it. There might be this information that I give them, but there's still maybe a wanting to virtue signal to others that even though they're having a home birth, they're doing all the right things. Um, and so if I sense that, I might ask them about that. That's a whole deeper level and find out, is that really what's going on or not really go- what's going on? Like, what do you really think? Keep feeding it back to them. But you have to have conversations around that. And I truly also have to detach myself from their decision of whether they choose to get it or not. And I'm kind of at that point where I um, somewhat, you know, with a lot of it, with the trust, the mutual trust that if I see a a problem or something that I see that's concerning that I'm going to be honest and let them know 
Um, but I have had to learn how to manage my own, my own little OB doing like flagging me down from the back of my brain. <laughs> like, wait a yeah, yeah, yeah. Outside I, of protocol. Wait a second. Wait, you know. Yeah. Um, my well, job. I'm learning. Be yeah. to them to manage that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's a major, that's a major unlearning. Mm -hmm. not just cultural unlearning like all of the women are having to do but you have like systemic and um like you have training to overcome because this is not what you learned in med school I mean I don't know where you no. went but no <laughs> I not, um yeah. I even in even in my midwifery training so I trained as a midwife before medical school there was still that um well, I'm the expert in, in birth and this mm -hmm. is, and, but, but I subscribe to that. So when I like look back at my, even my births, you know, and I, mm -hmm. I had um variety of different births, uh, birth stories over my five births, but you know, my first one and my second one, I was coming, um, post dates right and so we were doing things like stripping membranes and taking castor oil and all of that and I was down I was agreeing to that because in my mind 42 was the cutoff um it never kind of occurred to me and the ch some of the challenges that I had with those births um were a result of that um there was not a discussion of risk like we talk and talk and talk and talk about risk now and then it sort of explains mm -hmm. the difference between absolute risk and relative risk mm -hmm. honestly I think a lot of my OB colleagues don't understand sometimes th that difference which is you know oh it's three times more likely well it just went from one in a hundred thousand to three in a hundred thousand so that's the absolute risk there so what are we really saying about three times more likely um, but then there's personal risk. And my sense of risk is very different from the women that I sit, sit with, potentially. Um, mm -hmm. And so that that risk really is a personal choice is um, what I deem risky may not be what you deem risky um, from our own backgrounds and, and that. And so it's not, it's always a conversation, really, and not so... Um, cut and dry. Yeah, it's definitely not. Although again, the Mick likes to make it cut and dried. Um, I've, my current, uh, um, love and teaching fodder is what I'm calling the Holy Trinity, which is the risk assessment, boundary setting and informed decision-making mm -hmm. because to me, it, it, even though it's, it's never shared, uh, decision-making, it's always uh, in relationship and the relationship is oftentimes ignored in both extremes. So mm -hmm. in high tech mainstream medical world, the relationship is ignored um, and there's this paternalistic patriarchal, I know best kind of thing. But in really, um, uh, you know, with women, groovy, crunchy, hippie midwife zones, it's also ignored in the opposite direction where midwives are like, here, take of me, of all of me, my body, my breath, my phone number, every hour of my day, right? Yes. And I think both extremes are really dangerous. And so I've started um, really diving into helping midwives add the third leg of this stool, which is personal boundary setting. What am I okay with? The woman can choose whatever she wants. Like that person, person can actually have total sovereignty over their experience. They are in charge of their own bodies, just like I am in charge of my own body. And that is, if we want that for ourselves, we have to have that for everyone else, right? That's how that works. Um, but then there's this third piece, which is like, what's actually okay with me? What will I attend as a provider, as um, a, an experienced expert, as someone who's been there before in this litigious society where I might be held accountable for this outcome, regardless of how I believe the relationship should go. And then the third piece of the course is like, how do we communicate these two realities? Yeah. Um, I'm calling this the holy trinity of like, right? how the relationship works. That's great. And I love that. And I think that, um, I think that, you know, the, 
the drama triangle or that sense of heroing is where it gets yeah. super tricky personal boundary setting and that's yeah. um, and I it's it's really really hard I recently had to um um, tell a woman that I was, you know, working with that I was no longer in alignment. And so I think there was this yeah. concept like, oh, you're the radical OB who does home births and will take whatever. And, and um, it's, it was really challenging. It was really challenging for me. It was really challenging for my, um, well, who else is going to take her if I'm not there, mm-hmm. um, which is not, <laughs> dangerous place danger yeah. danger not yeah. a healthy place to be and mm-hmm. it's also heartbreaking because there's that every one of us comes in with service and so so many times um I you know I'm not and I've used it myself that term midwife but medwife excuse me but I also kind of hate it you know I hate it I hate this disparaging that happens of because I've been that person. I hate the, the, the straight out disparaging of whoever works in the hospital. And they're all that the individuals are misogynistic and patriarchal. Yes. They're in a system that there are. And I've had to do a lot of self-work myself around how is it that I participated in that? Because that's not what I wanted to be when I came in. And when I see any birth worker, regardless of what they're doing, they came in for um, a love of birth and a love of women usually and wanting to and in service to them. I'm at least going to hold that picture for them unless I'm really showing otherwise. I think it's, I think it's generally true. And there is, um, there is that sort of when you're in the system, like there were things that I saw that horrified me initially um, coming from midwifery and then getting my OB training in medical school and all that. And then over the course of years, it's no longer horrifying. It just sort of is. And so what part of that like cognitive dissonance mm-hmm. um, took took place and mm-hmm. um, sometimes you know feeling shameful about that and sometimes compassionately forgiving myself about that and I I waver somewhere between the two because I was definitely a part of it and so yeah um yeah yeah it's such it's such um god it's such a David and Goliath right like this this um this pushback and the pushback is like it seems so obvious to those of us who get it. Like, of course, everyone's in charge of their own body. Like, duh. <laughs> but somehow um, it does not seem obvious to folks on the other side. And um, I think it's interesting because like public health is a big part of this. And I talk about this a lot when I'm meeting with clients myself is like, the difference between information that comes at you from a public health perspective versus from an individualized health perspective. And they're oftentimes at odds. Yes, Um, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so when we look at the person, like they absolutely deserve that sovereignty, but from a public health epidemiologic perspective, when we're talking about saving lives, um, it gets a little more tricky, right? Tell me how you play with this reality in your, in your work. Well, I think, yeah. So I think, you know, I really, I, I, even when I was doing like more in the system OB, hepatitis B is one that comes up. And from a public health standpoint, it makes sense when you have, and I've worked as many of us have in our medical training in, in places where um, there's women who did not receive any care, where there were, um, you know, sex workers, where there were women who had IV drug use. And from a public health perspective, it makes sense to give those babies that first shot of hep B before they leave because they may not be coming back for it and they're in a high-risk community for it. But on an individual level, um, for somebody who's not in those high-risk environments, it doesn't make sense. And so that yeah, used to- that, that, feel, that feels like I can tease it apart, but, but play with me a little easy, bit. Right? Yeah, let me play with me in a little bit. Back when I was an OB, I was able to have that conversation really quickly with women and they would be able to get it. Um, 
Yeah, but, but it goes play away. with me in a little bit harder of an arena. Try this on for size. Okay. Um, I personally had babies by myself. I fully 100% believe in sovereign decision making and the right to autonomy and to no provider if you don't want. Like I, I'm, I'm fully supportive. However, when you look at the statistic, um. Over and over and over, it's been demonstrated that babies have worse outcomes when there is not an attendant there in all care settings all across the world. Mm -hmm. So play with me on this piece. Um, like, how do you, as an educated medical provider and a sovereign woman yourself, how do you play on this place? Like, how do you justify, comprehend, explain this really, this is a rub, you know? between yeah. what we believe and what is possible. Right. So um, it's super easy when it's a woman standing across from me or sitting across from me who's choosing to have an um, unassisted, well, I guess it's free birth now, right? Whatever the term is, yeah, <laughs> whatever it's called. Yeah, um, not hiring you to show up. Like, you know. Not hire yeah. me to show up. Um, frequently, they come and see me during pregnancy if they have questions about herbs or this or that, or, um, and I'll come out and visit them postpartum. And um, I, I feel like I don't need to quiz them over and over again about if they understand what they're doing. If I have a sense that they, then it's, it's not, um, then I'm there for whatever they, um, are asking me to do. Um, public policy wise, I don't think it should be, it goes back like fundamentally. It goes back to me about control over women's bodies. And so in particular, when we're talking about the way we give birth, it goes back to control over women's bodies. And I just don't have a pla place for it, even though it might be public. You can go public, I could go public policy. I could say, well, those babies are more likely to have NICU stays. And that takes more of our public health dollars, you know, to do that and long-term care or whatever it is. Um, or as a- Or loss of life. Or loss of life, right? Um, but who gets to say, like, who gets to say- that this, like this, like you're right at that point, right? Like right. it's still paternalistic. Public health care is still paternalistic because Pater it says we are absolutely paternalistic. We're going to save these babies no matter the cost to these women, right? right? That's what it says. Absolutely. So then, therefore, women's bodies are, um, you know, a commodity. That's yeah. where that goes pretty yeah. quickly. Yeah. Um, pretty quickly, and I don't. There's, there's so much outrage and there's so much, um, I stand, I stand with the women, I guess. Is that what I would yeah. Say? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I, I do too. I just, um, it's so conflicting because the public health policies, the recommendations to reduce the risk and loss of life and, and NICU and like, blah, it's so compelling. Because we do want to save lives and we do want to have great outcomes and what have you. But it really is um, like like what Breach Without Borders, what Rixa has done so tremendously is tease apart the, this is not apples and apples. Let's look at the actual apples and oranges debate here. And while babies definitely fare better with cesareans, women do not. So here's the thing, right? We need to do the same thing for all of community-based birth, like all of birth. We need to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Rixa does an absolutely amazing job and it still comes up. You know, I was at the recent breaches and breach and twins conference mm -hmm. and, um, she was there and it is, it, like you mentioned, it is true that breach babies, um, unassisted, um, there are, you know, there's a higher likelihood of, um, loss and, um, NICU stays, et cetera, et cetera, from that. And um, that being said, individually, um, you know, I think Rix is in the same boat as as you, um, obviously, in where she chose to have an assistant. <laughs> and they're both there. They're both there. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I think what maybe makes me a little bit different is that, and 
um, is that I'm, I'm really just at the point where I'm willing to, um, not willing to stand up. Maybe I'm going to get, um, absolutely ridiculed, stripped of my license and thrown in jail in a couple years. And, um, I'm going to have something else and it's going to be incredibly damaging for my family. And I'm going to have something else to say on the matter, Augustine. And if I was teaching, um, if I was more than myself just here and I was teaching baby midwives, um, there's a lot deeper conversation to be had that I don't think my way is the right way. Um, it's, it's it's to practice, to practice um, midwifery or obstetrics or whatever I am. It's the right way for me right now. And I feel convicted enough that I'm willing to um risk and i get it because you know what if midwives start getting it's all it's that concern of like midwives start getting their their license and stripped and thrown in jail and it's then in general more midwives are on a public health standpoint needed to serve we're very unmidwifed <laughs> under midwifed yes. here under yeah. very under midwife yeah in fact 50 percent of counties in the united states don't have an obstetric provider of any kind we yeah. have massive healthcare deserts and um, we're short on midwives and physicians. We're short on all care providers. It's, it's mm -hmm. a disaster, really. The United States is, is really in crisis. Um, in fact, I saw last night that, um, that ABC um, Nightline did a, a special on the crisis and it's finally getting mainstream attention. But, but back to this issue, because I think it's really fascinating, this, um, this, conflict, uh, this rub between individualized care versus public health care, because, you know, it, it really comes down. Um, you said, I stand with the women and it really comes down to being like, who gets to decide mm -hmm. in who risks as a result of that decision. And I think I have a lot of compassion for the medical industrial complex workers, not the system, the system's completely garbage, but the workers, the people on the ground, you know, I have a lot of compassion because they oftentimes risk by siding with the women. They risk their livelihood. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's so, so hard. And I am the first to say that I tell people that when they, you know, sometimes midwives will ask me or, and I'm like, I, you know, my children are older. I'm not the main um, financial provider for my family. I'm a white privileged upper middle-class woman. I mean, I, I see all of that. And I know all of that plays into me standing up and going, well, you'll just do it. You just stand side with the women. What's, <laughs> um, I'm aware of that. And again, I'm aware that it might not be um, in the same for everyone. It's, it's hard, but at the end of the day, there's like my personal integrity. And for my personal integrity, it's really hard at this point and for me to imagine going back and being beholden to um, my license or status quo or um policies procedures policies and procedures i mm -hmm. and i understand that i'm saying that from a place of privilege but i also um I also have to wake up with myself and I, and, and this is somebody who did it for, for many years, who used shared right. making. We all know, we all know, like there's quote unquote shared decision-making, but you know how to, everyone knows how to tilt the, the bias the conversation. Bias yes. Conversation. Just read how to, how to win and influence people, you know, <laughs> David Covey or whatever. You can learn very quickly how to bias the conversation. Sure. And it is my job to um, to stand in my own integrity and just continue to checking back in with that, checking back in with that, checking back in with that when I'm with the women and to out myself. Um, yeah. Sometimes I out myself and I out myself. It takes so much. It takes a lot of work. It, it took me, even after I knew I wanted to come back and do births, um, it took me, a, I, 
a long time to come to this point where I am now. I'm not, I didn't just like, or I didn't take, you know, a 12 week school or I didn't like wake up. This is a year's worth of work for me um, and continually being challenged, <laughs> challenged with each and every like new thing that comes up with the women who walk through my door or I go to their house each day of, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Becca here, your friendly midwifery wisdom podcast editor. I'm currently looking at my half-packed suitcase sitting in the corner of my room. I really need to get that filled because I'm getting prepped to come to the Midwifery Wisdom Experience next week in Denver. I cannot wait to see you there in person. Make sure to stop by the registration booth and say hi. I also understand that not everyone can be there in person this year. Whether you've got a client due that you just couldn't miss being there for, travel issues, family commitments, etc., we don't want you to miss out on the magic. That's why we are so excited to announce our streaming ticket option. Your access will begin on November 10th, the first day of the conference, and will last through the end of the month, November 30th. You can either watch live or catch the presentations later. That's the beauty of the streaming ticket. We have some truly incredible mentors and speakers presenting this year. You're not gonna wanna miss it. If this sounds too good to pass up, trust me, it is. Check out our show notes for the link to purchase your streaming ticket for the 2023 midwifery wisdom experience now back to augustine and rebecca well we're we're at one um kind of edge you know i feel like you and a few other um anti-establishmentarianism ob mds are out there um breaking down barriers and extending the edge of healthcare in one direction and I think we need all kinds. Like I think everyone doing everything is where where we're going to have a change. And so it's really inspiring to hear from you. Um, I appreciate your acknowledgement of how much privilege you walk with, but it's also, it's really inspiring to see you like pushing boundaries and um, having these, I'm sure really profound conversation with clients after client about their own sovereignty and what they own and what's their responsibility and what they can do and what they can change. I think that's really inspiring. But I want to go in, I want to talk about um, really another frontier um, that is uh, equally as devastating. And that is, um, or not not equally as devastating, there's no equality here. It's all, it's a challenge. But um, there, when we talk about these like healthcare deserts, when we talk about, we have food deserts across the United States, we know that black and brown women are three to four times more likely to die in childbirth than their white counterparts. We know that there are sometimes you can't get in till 20 weeks. I saw a statistic last night in that ABC program that there are 20,000 plus pregnant women who have no access to care providers across the nation. They are delivering with EMTs. They call 911 and EMTs are delivering their babies. We have um, even when you can get an appointment, oftentimes that first appointment doesn't happen till 20 weeks. And so just, I mean, I'm including myself in this, this is not a personal attack in any way, but when we talk about, um, sovereign unassisted free births, when we talk about providing hour and a half long prenatals and all of this, like juicy, delicious, spacious, ideal kind of support, um, there's another side, right? And it's like, what are we collectively as a nation of maternity care providers who care about the outcomes for people? How are we going to solve this other frontier, which is like people who are or have to be in the system? There's no way out. They don't have enough food. They don't have enough money. They don't have enough access. There's low resources. They are dying at alarming rates. Their babies are dying at alarming rates. There's nursing shortages. Like, how are we collectively, and again, this is not you specifically, but since you are a vested member of this um, this uh, culture, how are we going to, to affect change on that front? I know there's been public health policies of prevent, of promoting home health workers, which are really just the new age phrase for midwives, community midwives, right? Um, there's doula programs that are now getting reimbursed by insurance and state Medicaid and things like that. But like, you've been in the system. What do we, what are we going to do? What, what, what are we doing? 
I, I, it's abominable, first of all. And, um, I, when I keep, and when I keep coming around to it, it's, it's, and what I did, but I'm going to start with a personal answer. What I did from the very beginning, when I started, I knew I, I, I didn't want, you know, I'd come from this midwifery or natural birth background. And then, um, a friend of mine had a home birth when I was a teenager. And then that was like it. Right. And so <laughs> I came in and I was going to be the good doctor inside the system that was mm -hmm. going to help. I was going to be the one that was the good one that would change the system with all that vim and vigor that a young woman in her late teens and early twenties is. And I don't think that's possible. I think that the, we really have to look to new systems all together new systems it's not just our health care either i mean food you, education, every, education all the systems is, and they're really all based on capitalistic yes. focus so is yeah. it the capitalism we have to change like what do we have to change like i'm really serious i'm ready to brainstorm anything with you <laughs> This might be beyond the scope of what you thought today's conversation. Yeah. I I think um, I really think new systems. I really think about creating new new systems, and because I think the old ones are crumbling. And I think um, since there's so much more awareness, um, honestly, pre and post COVID, I think that was a huge. It was a huge this um, galvanizing point, and then these uh, dichotomy. I mean, talk about. <laughs> public health versus individualized decision. I mean, that was up in the forefront. Ground zero. Never Ground. had to think about it before. Suddenly yeah. it was in their face and they yeah. were making polarized stands around it. And so I think it's not just like the midwives thinking about um, this issue, but I think that um, in general, it's up. It's up for us culturally, um, all across the board, um, the faith in politicians, the faith in institutions is at an all time low. I mean, people who, yeah, the, the CDC and what people like are my, my mother and my grandmothers who had this faith in all of these systems, including our political system, um, that is really plummeted. And so yeah. I think everyone is seeing that these systems are, are not functional and, and not in the individual's best interest. And, um, I don't know. I don't know. Got to be changed somehow. Something's got to give, right? Something's got to give. Yeah. And it probably will. It's just the, the question is really, um, what are we going to build out of the ashes? And I think, um, you know, we already see a lot of things burning. So one is the completely out like you've done, like many have done is like completely separate, independent, not beholden to any one. Right. That's one way. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm imagining, um, how to, how to grow new systems. That's my current fascination. Well, so um, you are in the Midwest. Um, mm -hmm. Tell us about um, the the care that you're providing in your region. I know that you're also an herbalist. Um, mm -hmm. You've attended multiple, multiple herbal trainings. You're also a student of Evie Varam like I am and, um, and many others. Um, I love that you are a... Um, uh, Vagina Whisperer graduator, Tammy Kent is exceptional. Uh, I've been a student of hers for years. Um, really, your your certifications and credentials read like a who's who of the birth world. <laughs> so tell me about the clients that you serve and how you get to um, offer these, these trainings. I mean, also, it, I feel like I'm looking at birthing from within art in the background there. <laughs> There's a labyrinth on your website. You're like really deep, deep dive in here. So tell me about I think it's not listed there, but I've done those trainings too. I've done so much. I'm um, sure you have. I can see I, it. It's influenced I had to come up and out of the Midwest. And I'll have to say like a, a decade or more ago when I started sort of this, at first I sort of straddled both worlds where I went part-time and more typical MD office and then started this sort of as my side gig and pretty quickly 
um, the demand was of it was so high, but I even went back like Tammy Ken, I even went back. I took all of her trainings and all of her levels. And then I was like, Tammy, I need to come back because I'm losing my languaging. Now I have, you know, a decade plus in, but I'm because no one knows what I'm talking about. It's not like I'm. Yeah. And, and so I really felt like I was sort of like little house on the prairie out in the frontier here because the coast, you know, had these other concepts of this and the big cities do. Um, but there's nobody in in the area who really offers that yet. And it's it's like that in the Midwest in general. It takes a while for the the trends to sort of um, come yeah. in here. And so the other, I think one thing too, is that um, stepping out of those, yes, I have all those things that I've done, but I still until very recently never called myself an herbalist, despite the fact that I started taking my first herbal classes and doing my own tinctures when I was a teenager, which is now over 30 years ago. But I was like, well, I haven't done herbalism, whatever herbalism school. And it's, um, there's sort of this certification, um, which I, I, I tell women all the time. And I do do some trainings for birth workers, um, about, for example, I have one that I do on like the postpartum root care, the care of the woman's, um, body postpartum, and I'll have, um, doulas and midwives and all sorts of people come and, this concept that you have to have like a pelvic hydrotherapy certificate to do a vaginal steam, or that you have to have a massage certificate in order to put your hands on a woman's body after birth and, and, you know, touch her feet and rub her shoulders that you don't know. And I really, I really was there um, for a long time. That's is, honestly, my website was just redone last fall. And that was the first time I called myself an herbalist on it, despite mm -hmm. the fact that I've been making tinctures and giving them, it was, it was like, oh, can I do that? And so I've sort of had to unwrap and unwind to say, um, yeah, okay. I'm, a, I think it's folk herbalist, you know, like I, I, um, and we're all folk herbalists. And so that's one of the things right. that I love doing is teaching women, um, of, reclaiming really yeah, reclaiming yeah. and teach and, and, and then it goes into sovereign herbalism and there's some great yeah. people who do like courses on that like feral herbalism sovereign herbalism coming back to this is just what we did that's what our grandmothers did not that much not that long ago they absolutely yeah. did and we've yeah. sort of um begun outsourcing that well uh, we've had this commodification right in the patriarchy that's yeah. what all the certifications are about is like you have to pay for pay to play. You have to pay to access your own sovereign knowledge. And that, and that is a real reclaiming. It's so exciting. So what does your ideal or what does your customer look like? Who are your client or your who, who do you work with? Who's, who's the people that you work with? I work with um, women across the spectrum from young women to older women. And so pretty much anyone who would be going to see like an OBGYN or going to see a GYN about their body and they are looking for how to do it them, themselves more or less, right? And so um, if they have endometriosis, well, what can I do myself? Whether it's um, what you're doing lifestyle choices wise, um, herbs that you can take, um, meditations for your womb space, whatever it is, that sort of cross healing. And so a lot of times my women who come and see me are from two different spectrum. One is those that are never going to knock on the door of a, of a typical medical provider at all. And they want to come see me because they're not going there at all. My other which are more interesting and um, to and fun sometimes to work with are those that have been there. And I'm like their Hail Mary. They don't really understand what it is that I do. And they've never taken an herb in their life or made themselves an infusion or, um, but they're like, this didn't work for me. And then here I am at your doorstep. So I, and, um, and then, you know, I also work with pregnant women throughout their time, postpartum, Oh, it's a big love of mine. That's another one where if you start talking about the lack of postpartum care and what comes up will absolutely tear your hair out. And having taken Rochelle Garcia Saliga's course on innate postpartum, where she teaches us all of these great foundations for how to take care of women in their postpartum time. 
and then the graduates coming out and offering it to the community. And again, like you can tell I'm a course taker. So I went back and I did the next one where I got trained to teach her classes and, you know, all of that. And um, hearing that people don't show, women don't show, they don't even know what, and that happens with me a lot. They don't even necessarily know what it is um, that they need. And so they can't frame their question about it. They don't know what it means to be sovereign in their own, in their own healthcare or in their own pregnancy. And so, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that other side is that there's this other front here, which is like women, people who have been so indoctrinated into the medical industrial complex that they don't even know that there's an alternative. They don't even know there's another way. They don't even know that they have rights or sovereignty. Mm -hmm. And I get a lot of people who are like, oh, a doctor who does homebirth, great. That's just the mix I'm looking for. And then huh. um, uh -huh. I have this initial, I call it an alignment session. We do it where it's two hours and we sit down and sort of are like, okay, that's not actually um, that kind of care that you're getting. It's a different kind of care. And some come in knowing, but honestly, and I used to sort of freak out when that ones yeah. did and they didn't really get me or they didn't really get what I was asking uh, or how I envision that our relationship was together. And I'm, um, I don't as much anymore because they, um, there's a lot to be gained there. <laughs> and there's a lot that we walk through together um, through that and that reframing, which is so lovely in particular through like the pregnancy, birth and postpartum time to see that kind of um, emerging um, and, and blooming when it wasn't there and see them, um, have more confidence. I, you know, that's where I get, oh, that's changing the world. It's change. It's absolutely mm -hmm. changing mm -hmm. the world. It's changing the way they're mothering their children and the decisions they make. It begins to, um, yeah, they rise, they rise through that. And so when you first asked me, what's your ideal client? I'm like, Oh, my first thought that came through my head was, oh, the the woman who's ready to, uh, you know, be that knows she's sovereign and comes in because, but in a way, and they're great. Um, but in a way, those are the easy ones. Those are the super easy ones. And that's ideal for me on a lazy day. Um, mm -hmm. but, but the juiciness comes from um, those that we're figuring it out together. So. Mm, I love that. Yeah, sometimes that's my favorite too. The the transformation arc is so much bigger when they they come from that world that it's it's really beautiful to watch, right? Um, right. Yeah. It's an honor to witness, and it's not yeah. mine, and it's not because of me or anything like right. that. It's just they like, were just ready, right? When you're ready to teach privilege. your peers, it's yeah, my totally. privilege to be able yeah. to to witness that. Really, yeah. totally. Well, of all the care that you provide, this full spectrum, whole life cycle care, what what um, what do you see the most of? Are you seeing folks in postmenopausal time? Are you seeing mostly pregnant folks? Do you see well we people care? About, we could talk about um, perimenopause and menopause, and that's certainly up. Like the awareness yeah. up about that. Um, when I, when I first started doing, um, looking at birth work and in midwifery work in the early nineties, so this is kind of like the internet was a baby baby, right? And there were books and there was like spiritual midwifery and heart and hands and just a few yep. like books, right? That's when I came up. Yep. I know yeah. that time frame. Yep. And, and that was it. And we, we, and there were a few you could mail away for, for newsletters. Yeah. And then you yeah. would get a newsletter in the mail and you would read it cover got, to cover. Yeah, I got Birth Gazette and Midwifery Today when it was on paper. And I got yes. the VHS videos from, oh, from Birth yes. Gazette on like the farm. Um, yes. Yes. And went to I those remember. conferences. Right? So there was very little out there. Now there's an explosion out there. Now, you know, the Instagram feed is just filled with these women giving birth, giving birth, giving birth. I feel like for perimenopause and menopause, we're back in the early nineties right now. There's no <laughs> about it. There's not a ton of information about it. There's very few women on the 
um, internet or in, or on um, Instagram, certainly talking about it. I know it's coming, um, but it's still really hard. And so the medical model uh, that's talking about, you know, it was in the New York Times Magazine, um, women are being undertreated for menopause. Oprah had her big thing about menopause and perimenopause. And it's all, st and I'm glad, I'm glad because it needs to come up now. We need to not be um, frightened to say that we're having a hot flash at our workplace or, you know, all of those things. But um, it's still like, oh, they're undertreated for this hormone replacement therapy. And um, I'm, again, I'm not against hormone replacement therapy for if that's- No, but it's the same thing of like, um, we don't do enough cesareans. And so, um, you know, there's, I see um, a ton of perimenopausal women who are um, struggling with their symptoms. And I think one thing that's really interesting is, um, you know, that's my age now. And these are, so for a while, um, I said, when I was having my babies and having my babies at home, my friends were having the babies at home the other people at my, you know, we'd go to the teeny tiny Waldorf school out here in Louisville, Kentucky, you know, the one and everybody at the Waldorf schools doing that. And so, and then I get to the point where people are bringing their daughters into me and that still happens a lot. My daughter's having painful periods. Um, and the OB said to put her on birth control pills. I'm not going to do that. Um, and so, you know, we'll talk about my abdominal therapy and all the things that, and herbs and things that can be done to help with that quite effectively. Um, many times, majority, I'd say the majority of the time, those same moms who come and see me are on hormone replacement therapy already. They wouldn't give it to their daughters. They did, did natural childbirth. Um, but it is fright. It's frightening. And there's not a lot of, um, sort of grandmothers out there telling us, and it's coming now. I really like the Red School um, out of England. They wrote, they had written a book um, about the menstrual cycle um, called Wild Power, but they just wrote one called Wise Power about perimenopause. But it's like so few books I can name them, you know, and Hagitude, and there's just there's just a there's a new one called What Fresh Hell Is This? But it's very few. I feel like it's the early days when I had like. Yeah heart and hands and, and spiritual midwifery. And there was right. nothing else out there. I have right. great hope for my daughters, um, who are teens now, um, you know, 30 years from now. Yeah. Um, but I see a lot, lot of women. And sometimes I don't feel as I, I well, I'm not saying sometimes I never feel as well resourced with them as I do with someone who is looking at navigating their, their pregnancy and, and postpartum. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. Well, what's your favorite lifestyle stage or life cycle stage to work with? Oh, pregnancy. Pregnancy. pregnancy for, yeah. Just, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And, and you, for me, it's yeah, that aha it's moment, you know, is that what it is for you too? That, that like aha moment when someone like has a new personal understanding or discovery or awareness, what, what is it about it that I love that process. You know, I love that word matrescence, that becoming mother, yeah. that whole, it's not just the physical that happens, but it's their whole being changes. It truly is this metamorphosis and, yeah. um, it's gorgeous to, to witness. And, um, and it doesn't matter if it's your first time being, it happens every time it happens, that sort of, um, re um yeah that's cracking open and then re-emerging and yeah. that's where I think that cocooning of the postpartum time is so yeah. so important so when that re-emerging takes place you know it's within full splendor but that's um even when I wasn't doing um actively attending births, I still in my office did like pregnancy and postpartum visits for women because I just love being around pregnant women. I always yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a magic for sure. I'm I'm loving this um this quote on your website, when women gather, magic happens. And you will hold a number of women's circles, um, including uh, postpartum circles and birth story circles and group prenatal, all the things, right? Yeah. Yeah. What a resource in your community. 
do you do you know and collaborate with any local midwives? I do. And when I first started um, returning to birth work, I um, I'm so grateful um, that I I came as an assist really with um, um, the midwives and um, for a couple of years. And um, the majority of my, even though I had home births myself and the, um, and I attended a few, I specialed a few, you know, um, women before the bulk, the massive bulk of the births that I've been to are not physiologic births. They were births in the hospital. And so, um, yeah, I love working with um, the midwives and one of them in particular in my community, um, when we were a teenager, we, <laughs> we used to meet at her home. I meet at her home. She's a little bit older than me. And we did like the new view of a woman's body. And we got out our plastic speculum and looked at each other, you know, and we did, um, we did, what would you, what questions would you ask on an initial prenatal? And we made sheets together and, you know, all of that. And she's a practicing midwife in my community with almost 30 years, you know, experience now. And wow. um, it's such a blessing. I know my practice is called full circle and um, there's many, many, many holistic practices called full circle, but really in my life, I've made this arc from that to now. And it's uh, a joy. Um, it was joyful for us to, you know, for her to realize like, oh, you're back doing births again. And we um, support each other and collaborate with each other. And um, it feels great. That's awesome. Well, as we get uh, closer and closer to this ideal of interprofessional collaboration, um, because there are so many providers that need to uh, have a touch base in this space, like physiotherapists and lactation consultants and midwives and doctors and all the rest. We could keep naming them, right? As we get more and more interprofessional collaboration, I feel like we need a new name, right? <laughs> like we need a new name that, that contains us. Um, midwifery is what we've used, but now many, many people are rebelling against midwifery and they're using birth keeper or what have you there. They don't want to be midwives anymore. And it saddens me, but I also understand that we need a differentiation between what is currently being practiced in the medical industrial complex and what is happening in the community-based space. Midwifery wisdom, our focus has always been on the space. So we support all care providers in the community-based space so that we try to differentiate or we try to get away from this siloed, you know, turf, turf war thing that's happening. It's awful. It's what awful. do you wish we got called? Like, how, how are we going to come together? You know, like, I don't know. I think about it a lot. Yeah, that's such a great question. Because birth workers is just awful. I feel yeah. like. <laughs> Very akin to sex workers. And there's so much connotation there. It's hard to sell that. You know, it's hard to sell that. Um, yeah, I don't, that's a great question. That's a great we need a new name. We need a new name. I don't know what it'll be, but I want us to come together. I want that bridge building to continue mm -hmm. to build a whole new model mm -hmm. where um, people who attend and support the matrescence have a new have a new word. Well, it's been such a pleasure to speak to you. Um, as we wrap up, Rebecca, would you um, share, I guess, what you wish... Um, folks who are still in the medical industrial complex knew that you now know on the outside um, nurses or midwives or doctors who are still in the inside, but wishing it were different. What, what would you wish them to know? I would wish them to know that it, that it's a possibility. I think it just seems, and I think my, myself really for years, didn't even see it as a possibility. I didn't even realize it was out there that there was another, another way. Um, and, um, yeah, I think that's it. And I think the other thing is that women, um, women can be trusted. We say, <sighs> Mm. 
I don't usually get chalked up, but man, it hit, that was right in the heart. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. I want to give you a hug right now through the screen. I know. <laughs> screen hug. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In our, in our midwifery group, we do this to make the, I don't, can't even do it very well, but we do the little like heart from our thumbs. But yeah, I feel it, man. There is, I, that is a good one to share. Mm-hmm. Hashtag women can be trusted. I want to make that a, used to be Twitter, but now it's X and whatever the hell that means. <laughs> I want it it's tweetable. You know, I want, I want people to hear that loud and clear. And um, thank you so much for um, walking your talk. Thank you for demonstrating what is possible out here on the edge. Thank yeah. you. Thanks for having me.